0: Love to us inclined. The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the eighth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. As we've been reading in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we have a wonderful hymn about who Jesus is as the Christ. And this hymn is meant to keep the new believers in Colossae from being distracted by all that surrounds them culturally about divine beings and their powers. To make sure that they know the truth of who this Jesus is, Because that understanding bears directly on how they live in relationship to Jesus and also to each other. And that's also what's happening in our texts today. Last week we had the covenant God made with Noah and humans, as well as all creation, that God would never again destroy the earth by flood. And what was the symbol of that covenant? The rainbow, right? Right. And today we have God's covenant with Abram, soon to become Abraham, and that covenant is symbolized by what? It wasn't mentioned, but what's the symbol of it? It's circumcision. So what do we learn about who God is in this covenant? Well, what we see very clearly is it is God who acts towards Abraham. Did you hear the language? I will make my covenant. I have made you the ancestor. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. God is the one who makes impossible promises. Promises that are true. God shows God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. We talked about this last week. God's chesed. Because that promise God made holds true today. It's something that is shown throughout the ages. You can see its witness in scripture. God is faithful to them from wandering in the wilderness to entering the promised land. God is faithful to them through war and tribulation, through exile and Babylon. And finally, God is faithful to God's covenant and God's Son come to them. God is faithful through God's covenant. God's the 22nd psalm that we read today, the tail end of it, is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we read today the end of that psalm, which shows that God is the one who is trustworthy, even in the midst of lament and complaint, lament for what has gone wrong around us, complaint, crying out to God, where are you in the midst of this? But the witness of the text is God is the one who hears, and those last words, God has acted. Under God's reign, the text shows us the poor eat, And are satisfied. God hears the poor when they cry out. Who is this God? This is the one who sees and hears and acts, especially for those who are on the underneath of society. And then we have Paul's classic text from the Romans. It's one of the key tenets for us Christians who happen to be Lutheran, justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. And what Paul clearly says here is that God's covenant, God's contract, is not just with a people, the Israelites, those who are adherents of the law. Rather, Paul says, in Jesus, God's covenant is with all those who trust in God's word. Who believe in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things that do not exist. Where did your mind go when you heard those images? Calls into being those things that do not exist. creation Life from the dead calls into being things that do not exist. Ancestors that are now more numerous than the stars from a barren old couple. And then finally to the rain, no human rain can touch. God calls all those things into being and only God does that. And so what this means for us is that to be in right relationship with this God is is to trust God's promise. Trust that what God says is true and live according to that trust. But even with these witnesses, we humans continue to be confused about who God and Jesus is. We fall in the same trap that Paul was concerned about for those Colossians. We conflate God With other gods around us, with human understandings of what is important, what rulers do, what a true reign looks like, we trust in what we know, not necessarily what God calls us to or promises. Back in October, I was privileged to be in a continuing education event led by pastor and scholar Mark Davis uh, on the Gospel of Mark. He was helping us think about this gospel as we entered into it this year. And Davis has kind of a unique unique take in what is going on in our text this morning. He notes that in the Gospel of Mark, every time Christ or Messiah, that language is used, it seems to indicate something other than what Jesus intends to be. And so kind of to counter this, Jesus uses the language son of man. Son of man seems to kind of ground him in reality, but also it was a way that he has been teaching them. He says, this is what son of man means. This is what the reign of God, which has come near in me, is about. Now, just before the text that we read, Peter, right, Jesus is walking along and he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the conversation about me? Uh, what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening, right? Some, some of us are old enough to remember that show. Um, what's, and they say, well, some say that you're a prophet or John the Baptist or, well, okay, who do you say that I am? Davis says what he's really saying here is, what are you contributing to the conversation? And so he hears what Peter says a little differently, right? Peter's response is, you are the Messiah. Davis says, what Peter's saying is, we have been contributing this to the conversation, that you are the Messiah, the Christ. And Peter seems to have this kind of triumphalistic view Right? We've talked about this, of this great warrior prince ruler. One that kind of mirrors one that they would have picked up, a view that they would have picked up from the Roman Empire. That Jesus would march at the head of an army to wrest control from the Romans, would have military power. That Jesus would bring all Israel under his political power and then lead a righteous nation as a shining city on a hill to draw all nations to the worship of the one true God, religious power. But Jesus insists on taking another path, one that includes suffering and death. And so Jesus rebukes Peter for this triumphalistic thinking. The language of rebuke is the same language that he uses to cast out unclean spirits. He says your philosophy, your practical wisdom, your thinking is set or captured in human mode, not divine mode. And I wonder if Jesus' response is so vehement because he knows how important this is. This is a hill to die on. Davis argues that, quote, Peter is claiming a false Christology, a false understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus discloses his impending death as a way of wrestling that term Christ away from this crossless interpretation. But why is our understanding of Jesus so important? Because it means two different things to be a disciple, depending on which view you take. One is based on a human way of thinking that seeks to gain the whole world. We heard that too, right? What will it profit you if you seek to gain the whole world? This is the imperial way of thinking. Domination. The emperor as Christ, Messiah, Lord, Son of God. All of these were titles for the Roman emperor. Remember that. It's the glory of war where all your enemies fall vanquished and you come through with just a few smudges of dirt. We win because we conquer. Davis points out that this might be what Mark sees as the temptation for Jesus. That that view might be the temptation for Jesus. In the wilderness, right, when he's driven out after being called God's son, right, now, as Peter gives voice to it later in the garden when he says, remove this cup from me, the temptation may be to accept the human way of thinking, and so, at least it would seem, avoid all that pain and suffering. The other way of discipleship is the godly way of thinking, which accepts rejection, suffering, dying and rising for the sake of the whole world, even those who have done this to you. It's a way filled with healing and love and forgiveness. And Jesus lays this out for his disciples, and that includes us. We're part of the y'all. Y'all want to follow me? Follow me as the Son of Man. Follow me as the one who casts out unclean spirits that hold people in bondage and so upset those who think they ought to be kept away from the righteous because of what they do when they say. Follow me and heal those who are sick. Forgive them, bring them shalom, right? That peace, that is wholeness, a pulling together of a person, even though others will say they're getting what they deserve. Don't waste their time. You see the difference? I like the way Pastor Brian stauffergan looks at Jesus' invitation for us to take up the cross and follow him. It's a little bit of a unique take. He says he's inclined to see that invitation to take up the cross and follow him as a picture of the criminal carrying the cross through the city rather than the actual crucifixion. He writes, as I understand it, the act of carrying the cross was a public display of guilt which resulted in ridicule and scorn from the people. And so with this understanding, the phrase might be paraphrased, be willing to publicly display your faith and suffer the consequences that such a display might evoke. In this understanding, Jesus dies because human thinking is opposed to his healing mission and the disruption that that mission brings to the established, the human way of doing things. But unbeknownst to his opponents within the Jewish tradition, they are opposing the inbreaking of the reign of God. Just like the blind man in the episode just before this moment, they cannot clearly see what is right in front of them. One scholar put it this way, Mark is saying that the Son of God will not dial down his ministry to spare his own life or even to ease his suffering. His commitment to the healing of humanity literally knows No limits, and neither, Easter tells us, does God's life giving power. And so for Mark, discipleship is not some comfortable affiliation with Jesus, but a life changing and then also potentially life threatening commitment to Him. Life threatening because when we proudly bear this faith out into the world, we continue to run afoul of human thinking. That imperial thinking. And that's not just in the secular world, we also run into it in the church. And this thinking is threatened by this true understanding of who Jesus is. I wonder if you see a combination of both the secular and the church opposition and Alabama Supreme Court Justice Parker's suggestion that America was founded explicitly as a Christian nation and discussed his embrace of the Seven Mountains Mandate, the belief that conservative Christians are meant to rule over seven key areas of American life, including media, business, education, government. Is that really divine thinking? Or is that human thinking? Is it rooted in helping the poor and the underprivileged? Is it about healing? How does it feel about those who are in opposition to it? Would it look upon them with love? Is it captured to the human way of thinking or is it divine thinking? This is why we continue to ask ourselves, am I following Jesus here? Or am I following something else? We always check ourselves. This is what we Christians who happen to be Lutheran do all the time, isn't it? We always are asking ourselves, is this Jesus I'm following here? But even then, those questions bring us back to the beginning. Because as important as it is how we live our lives... The important thing is not what we do, but that we trust. And that trust comes because God has acted. Our God is the one who always comes down to us. That's the constant witness of Scripture, right? God is the one who comes to us, who chose Noah, who called Abram, right? He came to Abram and said, pack your bags, take your family, head out, I'll tell you when to stop. Abram didn't just do this. Abram didn't approach God, put out an ad. God comes. God is the one who feeds the poor and hungry. God is the one who hears the cries of the oppressed, right? He comes to Moses and he says, I have heard the cries of my people. God is the one who comes to the world in Jesus and says, Beloved, beloved, listen to him. Ecute class. Follow me to a life that truly is life. And imperfectly, begrudgingly, haltingly, we follow and find that even while this life can be harder in some ways because we bump up against that human thinking, the values of the reign of God are different from that of the reign of humans, even with that it is still a life that is truly life, lived in relationship with God and with each other. We've been asking this question about who God is and who God in Jesus is. But for many of us, that leads us kind of to the ultimate or maybe even the starting question, well, who am I? In baptism, we are given that identity. We are called beloved by God, claimed as children of God. And in this meal, we are fed with Christ's own body and blood. Forgiven for those places where we have fallen short of the reign of God, strengthened to continue the journey. But in the end, perhaps Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it best in his letters and papers from prison. He writes, who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Trust. Faith. That's faith in a nutshell a trust in the God who is creator of all, father of Jesus, lover of humans. Who looks at us and says, I love you. You are mine. And in the end, that is all that matters. Thanks be to God.